0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to Georgina Lawton, the writer whose memoir, Raceless, deals with the lasting impact of family secrets. For most of her life, Georgina Lawton was aware that she didn't look like her white family, but by her teens, she was no longer able to believe her parents' line – that she was, to quote, a genetic throwback to a Black ancestor. In her memoir, Raceless, she writes about the difficult process of forging a Black identity from scratch and the painstaking work of repairing her relationship with her mother after years of denial. Georgina Lawton, welcome. It is absolutely lovely to have you on the podcast. And I have been dreaming of inviting you on here for ages. Have you? Because yeah (laughs) because in my other job as a literary scout I got to read the proposal for your book like two years ago maybe. Oh my god okay interesting. Yeah yeah and flagged it to all our publishers then because I thought it was just such an incredible story and then was really pleased to see your book but it delivered because it was just so wonderful and that doesn't always follow necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I was then like, right, if I ever do a podcast, I'm definitely having her on. So I've been I've been hounding you and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm glad we've got the
2: time to book it in because, yeah, everybody's at home now. So it's, it's sort of perfect timing for podcasts and interviews, isn't it? It really is. It's made all the difference. And it does mean that you can just be a bit more bold about,
0: you know, emailing people and going, yeah. do you
2: fancy it? <laughs> you know, I've made loads of internet friends, you know, like I never thought I'd make so yeah. many sort of online Friends, and I was always really wary of sort of like chatting to people on Twitter or like making those connections sort of (laughs) translate to an interview or something. But now it feels so much easier and so much more sort of expected because everyone's online just doing not as much as they were before. So, (laughs) no, and people are actually generally
0: I know we like all remember the people that are dreadful to us online, but. 99.9
2: Ninety-nine point nine
0: recurring percent of people are just absolutely lovely yeah. and just want to be nice to you. Yeah,
2: true. Especially other people in the industry, you know, that you sort of look at and you you see their work mm. and you follow their work. And I was like, why did I not, you know, congratulate that person before or reach out earlier? Yeah. It was just sort of intimidation. But now everyone seems to be more more accessible in a good way. But also, I guess it's like the
0: early days of Twitter again. <laughs> it really is. Everyone's accessible again, and I think there was a period when everyone kind of zipped up their cardigan metaphorically speaking um, and
2: everyone's unzipped a bit again it's quite mm, nice no it's that... interesting it's sort of democratized online space yeah. a bit more isn't it this pandemic
0: yeah and that's a that's like a that needed to happen mm. but yeah interesting year <laughs> um so I would love to share with my listeners your your amazing and really heart-wrenching story actually oh. I mean, I. Te- please correct me if I phrase this wrong, but you grew up in Surrey, mm-hmm. two two white parents, mm-hmm. but you were born black. Yes,
2: yeah. And like, when did you when did you start to notice that? Gosh, I would say my like moment of racial reckoning, I guess, was at about five mm. years old when I was at school, and I remember talking to another child and saying why is my skin this color and i must have said something like you know i want to be your color i remember the girl who was white and we were scratching each other's skin and she scratched mine and when you sort of scratch yeah. brown skin it turns this kind of temporary like ashy color and i wrote about this in the mm. book and i remember i remember that scene distinctly so i must have been yeah four or five when i realized that i didn't like anybody else but also that i wanted to look like you know my classmates yeah. and my friends and my family i guess
0: yeah and it was not acknowledged in your family that... I mean, did I suppose they acknowledged that you looked different, but they had a story for that, right?
2: Yeah, so I would go home as a child and ask my parents repeatedly, you know, sort of, I guess, with increasing frequency as I got older and, and became more cynical. But, you know, as a five-year-old, maybe that was the only time I asked that year. I can't remember. And then as I got older and more people would ask questions on holiday and stuff, I would I would start to think, actually, no, this doesn't make sense. But as a child, you know, I'd ask every so often and then it would get forgotten about because we had an otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, very happy, sort of normal, benign, middle class, Surrey kind of upbringing yeah. <laughs> with my brother. So it wasn't, it wasn't always at the forefront of my mind. And my mum would also say, you know, we don't need to talk about that. Or mm. you could have inherited your looks from an Irish throwback ancestor. because She comes from the west coast of Ireland and There's this sort of spurious part of Irish history where people say, oh, you know, the west coast of Ireland was the gene pool was made darker because the ships from the Spanish Armada were wrecked off a place called Spanish Point, which is actually near where my mum comes from in County Clare. And, you know, there are lots of people with dark hair and and pale skin, but I don't I don't look like that. I'm I'm black. I'm Mm. visibly black. But that was the sort of story that anchored me into my mum's heritage and sort of excused or overlooked my blackness in a way. And that was something we leaned on, but it, it's, it's not actually historically yeah. accurate. There wasn't enough people of sort of Moorish image to sort of infiltrate mm. the Irish Gene pool. It's not true. <laughs> and I, I like, for me, this is, I mean,
0: this is the heart of why your story is so incredible because what it points to immediately is our inability to talk about race and blackness and our, you know, our lack of kind of comfort in the UK yeah. with being able to to name that you know it was mm. seen as polite to not mention it and and politeness was really painful for you that that avoidance
2: yeah completely i think it it's really is you know it's my family first and foremost but i do think our family unit is sort of a microcosm for some parts of the UK and how we we just have to overlook race as a means of accepting it and of course that shouldn't be the case Mm. but people sort of misbelieve that if we do talk about race, then racism will follow. So we shouldn't mention it at all. And it's just better to be polite and to just say nothing, but that silence and that politeness can really stifle relationships and stifle, I guess, the sense of self from from the child or the person whose race is being overlooked. Yeah. Because
0: while you were being brought up as a a white child, essentially, Mm there were loads of parts of your experience that were that of a black child. People from the outside saw you as black yeah. and talked to you about being black.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, and I guess this would, these moments of, of these reminders that I was black would, would would happen with increasing frequency, as I said, as I got older mm. and as I got sort of more uh, interested in exploring other parts of London, other parts of UK and stepping outside my comfort zone and stepping outside this sort of protective bubble of whiteness which you know I mm. loved it was my family like my dad and I were super close and I, I wasn't you know unhappy in in the situation that I was born into I just always had questions and yeah other people would point out as we went into South London oh you look mixed race or you look like my friend right. or, you look like you know Ethiopian or what's your mix and I'd have all these questions and I'd go home and they just weren't getting answered. It was just this consistent sort of stonewalling mm. when it comes to, when it came to the issue of race. So yeah. it was thrilling at times and, and lonely at, at times as well, because I had so yeah. much love in my life from my parents, but then I also had this sort of denial of an essential part of me, I guess. Yeah. And
0: there was a moment in the book where your teacher came with the class register
2: and and asked you how you could possibly say you were white British. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I just I've, I've quizzed my mum about this, and you know that when I went to secondary school, they marked me down on the school system. They put my ethnicity, or whatever terminology we call it, um, for these school system sort of records. They they'd marked me down as white. My parents had put me down as white. So then, you know, sort of it, it stands to reason that eventually, maybe somebody was going to say, "How come you are down <laughs> on the system as white?" It doesn't make sense. So that my teachers' methods were trash because she called me out in front of the whole <laughs> class and it was like yeah that's you know, awful. embarrassing but then she kind of did me a favor in a way because she sped me up on that process of, of acceptance mm. and that you know she reminded me I'm mixed race or I look black or you know however people yeah. believe me to be I'm still not going to be accepted into that exclusive category of whiteness which is based around myths of, of, of purity yeah. and you know it's not going to accept me so why try
0: yeah 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 I mean like I'm I'm very definitely white but um my mum's side of the family everyone has kind of very black hair and I've inherited the the sort of very dark eyes mm. and so obviously at some point in our ancestry you know we have you know some somewhere like got something from like the far reaches of Europe or Asia or you know whatever but nobody knows but mm-hmm. I mean we like we attract comments on like weird sideways comments on it you know like touch of the tar brush when I was a child I remember hearing because my eyes were so dark and like it, it's like on one hand we're too polite to talk about it and on the other hand it kind of bursts out of people in weird offensive ways yeah. you know they, they want you to know that you look different to them and like my difference is so tiny that you wouldn't think it was worth commenting on but apparently people can't resist it
2: yeah yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I never I never had, you know, derogatory comments from the people that loved me, that were in my life, in my immediate sure. circle, my family, my friends. But sort of, you know, even a few distant relatives over the years, there'd be little, not even comments about my appearance, but comments about the appearance of other people that looked like me or thinly veiled racist remarks about, you mm-hmm. know, crime-ridden neighbourhoods. And as a child, I'd look down at my skin and then look at the people on TV and think, well, where do I fit in? Because I look like them, but nobody's acknowledging that in these spaces where. You know, I'm supposed to be loved and I'm supposed to be seen. Yeah. So it was re- it was really yeah. isolating at times because I could hear these remarks about people that you know strangers would would make to me, and I'd say, "Well, this is what I look like." And they say, "Oh no, you're not really black." Or, "Oh, you're no, you're, you know, you're one of us." Or, "Oh no, your <laughs> parents are white," or whatever. <laughs> and it's like the lie and the silence kind of went full circle because we've been we've been saying it for so long that then when other people made racist remarks and I'd pull them up on it, you know, our story would come back and hit me in the face because they say, "Oh, well, you know, you don't count because your parents are white," or "You've already said that you're not." And I'd be like, oh, maybe I'm not then, because <laughs> people are making racist remarks in front of me. So maybe I'm not really. Yeah. So it was very, yeah, it was really confusing as a child at times. Yeah. To be in those in those spaces of sort of the in betweenness.
0: And and as a you know as a child and a teenager, those questions of identity are so like painful in you. They're so everything. They take take you over, and and feeling like an outsider. Is not something you can cope with very well when you're a child, I don't think.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. Every 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 person has gone through those rituals of, of of isolation as a teenager, whether it's like after a breakup, mm. or sort of weight problems, or skin, or whatever it is. Like everybody can relate to that feeling of of being on the outside at some point. I think. Yeah. But with me, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was all of those things, but they were sort of exacerbated because I was also black, and I was the only person that was black that looked like me. Um, so of course, if I'd grown up in a black community, I would have had a perceived amount of privilege because I'm, I'm mixed race and because my features speak to that. Right. But because I was the only person that looked like me. You know, in my entire year at school, I remember in infant school and you know in my church, um, mm-hmm. in my family on both sides. So I was the only person. Yeah. So I was the blackest person there. So it wasn't sort of a privilege that I would I would say even existed really for me until I started to you know venture out past my community. Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely isolating at times. Yeah, and you had
0: an encounter with a hairdresser who said she couldn't cut your hair because it was afro hair.
2: Yeah, you know that's what I mean when when we think about you know this this sort of hierarchy of black hair, and hair like mine is also is often sort of awarded this um, this sort of status of, of desirability because it's curly, it's not quite afro in the white right. spaces that I I lived in, my hair was the most Afro hair they'd ever seen. So of course they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't deal with it. So we got turned away and I remember we just we just went to Croydon nearby and you know we didn't discuss me and my mum what that meant or why we were getting the bus to Croydon or why the white hair salon <laughs> in Sutton had turned. Couldn't, yeah. We just didn't talk yeah. about it. It was just okay, right, we'll go find somebody that, and we went and we found a black you know my mum found black hairstylists for me but we never really spoke about why she was having to do that like i don't remember having yeah. conversations about it which looking back is so bizarre but as a child you just start to accept your 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 normal because you want to belong yeah so so when did that begin to
0: change because i eventually you took a dna test mm. but only when your dad was very poorly actually
2: Yeah so all those questions I'd managed to kind of keep buried within me but even i looked at my actual old Facebook messages with friends the other day and you know at 18 I was talking to them on Facebook chat about getting a DNA test so it had been in my head I think right around 15 16 because I'd sort of had enough of all the questions and you know we were meeting new people we're meeting boys on nights out and I'd always get asked about my racial mix and I've never had the answer so I kind of got it in my head that I wanted to do it and then yeah when I was at uni my dad got sick with cancer and mm-hmm. it was just sort of like my world or my childhood ended and it was a really painful time and it was really difficult to to think about processing a DNA test result because he was so sick and he was so concerned yeah. with looking after me and my mum and my brother and making sure we were going to be fine without him He was just very practical and very Stoic when it came to his illness, sorting it out, mm. yeah, it just yeah, it was really, really hard, so I spoke to him about it, and I ordered the DNA test, and I spoke to him about it when he was ill, and I remember him being in the living room and saying, Yeah, you can get the test done if you want, but I know that you're mine
0: yeah, and I, but that okay, I mean, your dad just sounds lovely, you know? yeah really and sounds like you know he he wanted you to be his daughter because he loved you and It must have been really hard to assert that identity that meant that you were slightly more separate to him than, than anyone wanted you to be.
2: Yeah, it was that. It came from, you know, I've talked about having, you know, your race overlooked as a means to accept it. But I do think it largely came from a place of love and him not wanting to accept that we were different um, Mm. biologically, because then that would mean he'd have to accept that my mum had been unfaithful, which she was, and he'd Mm. have to sort of learn to forgive her and learn to accept our difference and he just he wasn't able to do that so I do think it it came from a place of love and wanting to keep the family together and silence around my heritage and my real parentage was the only way that my parents could Mm. could keep the family together by the sounds of it you know I've spoken to my mum at length but it, it was really difficult for me to accept that because yeah I just, I never got a chance to speak about it with my dad because he passed away before I processed the DNA test results.
1: Mm. And
2: then I didn't get them processed until a year afterwards They were just sitting on my shelf for ages. Right. And then I decided they're done. Yeah. Just get, just, yeah. yeah. Get it over with,
0: <laughs> Yeah. And, and still your mum tried to deny that anything could be Different for you, even at that point.
2: Yeah, we had the the results, and she just didn't want to acknowledge that they they were correct. She didn't want to go back to a part mm. of her past that she'd kept locked up for you know twenty three years. Yeah, which I understand, but it was just really hard for me because I was in bits. I had these results, and I still wasn't able to kind of get the the full story from her straight away. So I had to get my brother to intervene, and we had to sit down with her, and then finally she spoke about you know, having had a one-night stand with a guy in the in pub in West London. And we lived mm. around there as, when I was a child for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. And it was just a, just a thing that happened and such huge consequences. We'll be back with more from Georgina in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about my online course, Wintering for Writers, Which is back online after a successful first run last summer. Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful reflective process for writers who are currently struggling, as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or are losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought provoking texts to help you rethink your practice, and there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on Courses or follow the link in the show notes. And now, back to Georgina Lawton. I mean, what I'd love to talk about is how you began to address this feeling of, like, dislocation and anime. You you travelled, first of all, I think, and that helped.
2: Yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was really fortunate to be able to do that, to have the money to do that. And I was sort of working remotely from my laptop, doing writing for different sort of women's magazines. And mm. I just knew that I had to get out of, of the community that I'd grown up in. It had given me so much stability. But also, of course, after my dad passed away, I'd lost that. Then I sort of lost our our narrative to one another anyway. Yeah. So I was sort of grieving twice or grieving you know, doubly and mm. things weren't good with my mum because we still weren't having honest discussions about everything. And I just thought, right, I'm going to go. I want to go. And I also want to sort of play catch up with a lot of the stuff I've missed out on as as a young yeah. black woman. I've missed out on, well, it was more it was more an inter- like a psychological thing. I felt I'd missed out on a lot of um, opportunities and I felt like I'd been sort of living half a life. So I wanted to go and live amongst black communities and just see myself reflected on a daily basis in the places that I lived
0: Mm. and so where did you live you lived all over the world didn't you it
2: sounds incredible yeah I went I went on a a (laughs) jaunt for like a year and a bit so I went to Brooklyn first of all and I thought right I'm gonna get like a a journalist visa and live this sort of like you know girl's life but with black character at the forefront like I was really hell bent on (laughs) On doing that, and I, I stayed for six months. But I couldn't get the right visa, so I thought, okay, right now I'm going to go and do some travel writing. So I got offered a, a press trip to Vietnam, so I got flown to Vietnam, and then after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep traveling. So I went to Nicaragua, uh, Dominican Republic, Cuba, and then I came back to London, and I got another press trip for South Africa and Zimbabwe. Wow,
0: oh, and and being a black person in a black majority country mm. is a very different experience, I assume, to being black in a white majority
2: country yeah there were so many questions that got brought up in my mind as a black female traveler with a British passport so I I Mm. see myself reflected in places like the Dominican Republic I blended in so well that everybody thought I was Dominican and also in Cuba and that was a great privilege in a way to blend in like a local to pass as a local but then Mm with that also comes discrimination because you see how people with darker skin are treated in places like Cuba you know it, it seems yeah like there's such an egalitarian society but as i put in the book if you do a little bit of digging it's white cubans that all have bank accounts cuz not everyone owns, has bank accounts it's white cubans that own most of the property and there's a lot of racism in these black majority countries these beautiful places within the diaspora that are so vibrant and so so enchanting and to to move through that as a black woman was was fascinating, and I feel really lucky that you know in a way those are are yeah. a part of a part of me because as a black female you can see yourself reflected in all these spaces. But then when you actually realise also that you will be discriminated against in a way that maybe isn't as bad at home because of, yeah. of racial hierarchies that exist in these countries that are a lot worse because of the, the impact yeah. of colonialism, because of the legacy of white supremacy, and because of the disparities between rich and poor, it's like. Yeah, it was yeah. a constant sort of headbending. It's massively experience. complex. <laughs> it massively complex to pass as Cuban and Dominican and then, you know, in the same moment be refused entry to a bar or a club because people think you're Cuban or Dominican. So it's like uh. then I'd have to speak English really loudly and suddenly my privilege would get restored to me. Uh, It was just interesting to see constantly how all those different facets of my identity were intersecting and how Mm. one would overshadow the other depending on how I dressed or what passport I had or what language I spoke. And I feel like what you learned about more than anyone
0: else could do in a funny kind of way is race itself and how it's constructed Mm. and what it means. Like, I don't I don't think I've ever met anyone in a position to understand that through so many different facets and lenses.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I tried to put that down in the book. You know, my personal experience growing up, sort of, as a black woman, you in, know, in with a white cultural identity in a white family. That's that's mm. one perspective. But then, as a traveling black woman in these black spaces, I think lots more people are, are, are writing about that now. We just see yeah. how blackness is constructed around the world. And I wouldn't, you know, go as far as to say, you know, race is fluid because for a lot of people of color, it's not fluid. It just speaks to. I guess, the flimsiness mm-hmm. of our racial contracts and how, how different they are in, in each community that exists around the world within the diaspora. You know, being Black in this country is not the same as being Black in America. Being Black in America is not the same as being Black in South Africa, for example. Like, racial categories change all the time and the boundaries mm-hmm. are always moved. Um, so it was interesting, yeah, to see that at play and also to see how ethnicity, nationality and race and gender all intersect someone like me and this and you
0: know the idea of like anyone being racially pure on any level for any kind of you know identity or race is just so collapsible particularly as soon as you start to look at dna evidence and how Mm. mixed we all are ultimately somewhere in our heritage
2: yeah for sure for sure.
0: But you found that you had quite a strong Nigerian heritage when you took your DNA test, I think.
2: Yeah. So on the road, I, I partnered with the DNA, well, the DNA company contacted me after they read some of my writing online. They said, we'd love to offer you a DNA test. We can mm. film it in your next country. Where are you going to be? And I was in Mexico, I think. And we filmed like a video of me talking about my story. And then they'd given me this free test. So I thought, okay, great. Like, I wonder what it will say. And then when I found out, the results I was in Nicaragua and it was weird it was a very weird moment opening it in Nicaragua <laughs> having not really spoken to my family about you know my plans to take this test and then it coming back and saying I was basically 50% Nigerian and I was like oh okay like after all this 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 time sort of spent in in, <laughs> in a weird kind of racial no man's land almost or just not having an answer it's, it's actually very specific in <laughs> the end isn't it you know <laughs> And very sort of 50-50 split. And I was sort of dreaming yeah. of, of having, you know, this like weird... Um, <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Weird Woman of the world. From, from bits all over the world. And it was literally 50-50. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I've got lots of yeah. like, British Nigerian friends in, in London. And they are all just like, oh, hey, welcome to the club. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> but what does it mean to be Nigerian if you've never been
0: Nigerian? You know, that's like a whole other other complex.
1: Exactly. It
2: feels really odd <laughs> even sort of claiming it if somebody asks where I'm from now you know I've got three or four different answers prepared based on how long we've got who they are how much <laughs> because how much energy you've got right now yeah because yeah I, I can't sit here and and talk about my Nigerian cultural heritage because I don't have that and maybe I never will but
0: mm.
2: I guess I can speak to those DNA test results because it's such a, a a big split and on a continental level they're quite accurate right so right it's likely also that I you know I found a, a black relative through the site but she's quite a distant relative so I couldn't really match with anyone closer but she was Nigerian and we met up and I put that in the book and that was a, a really cool moment to just see another black face that was also a relative of mine I'd never had that before yeah yeah but she was Nigerian so I spoke to an expert and they said oh it's likely then that your biological parent is Nigerian if you've got these two links it's likely and I was like okay cool I can accept it but it it still in a way doesn't feel real because I don't know anything about Nigerian culture through sort of you know family osmosis as most people get their cultural identity you know yeah
0: absolutely yeah those those little fragments of stuff that come from food and storytelling and
2: turns of phrase you know yeah I mean, people are like do you miss it or do you wish you had it and I was like you can't miss something that you never had like I don't know what yeah. I've lost because I had quite a full upbringing it just wasn't the one that people assume matches my Mm. skin colour or my appearance do you know what I mean but I, I I'd love to find out more about my Nigerian side I'd love to find out more about that family that probably doesn't know I exist um
0: yeah because you've never you've never tracked down your biological father
2: yeah no I I, I mean I keep my DNA in these in these sites but I haven't found a closer relative I haven't found him and I I don't really know where to go because I don't have a close enough match to even sort of like triangulate all these all these reference points so yeah
0: so it's like a there's an open possibility for the future,
2: there, isn't there? It is, but you know, if it never happened, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be devastated because I had such a great fa- father, and I had yeah a great cultural upbringing in what I know. I never felt like I missed out on much growing up in terms of like a cultural mm-hmm. identity because I just, again, I didn't know what I was what i was missing so it's hard to sort of align that.
0: it's not like you're cultureless is it you've got a culture it's just not the culture that people expect you to have maybe it's it's a yeah
2: yeah but i think having spoken to a lot of my um you know british nigerian friends it's sort of a similar a similar issue because they're black and they're british but they're second mm. or third generation so you obviously you feel that loss maybe more yeah. when your parent is actually from one country and you're you're maybe not able to speak the language as well, or you're not able to uphold the traditions in the same way because you were born in Britain. So anyone that's born in Britain, but has, you know, parents from another country, I think they kind of can speak to that experience a little bit as well. Mm. Definitely like similarities. Yeah. Yeah. Except they've always sort of known what they are and I've always had questions, but it's, it's similar in some ways, I think.
0: Absolutely. So to close the story, I guess, you and your mum, did some work in the end didn't you I mean I, I think one of the things that comes across you from your book is like the power of
2: really good therapy to yeah. make things <laughs> to set things straight again yeah yeah therapy's amazing again I feel really lucky that I had money to see a therapist once a week I found a black female mm-hmm. therapist in South London and that was really powerful to to have conversations about things I'd never been able to, to find the language for
0: right
2: and you know having her talk about experiences like mine with, with other people. She, you know, she was saying there's a lot of similarities between you and some of her clients who were adopted. Or mm. there were Yeah, there was a lot to talk about with her and I found that really, really liberating. And then my mum found a therapist for me and her also in South London who was a white lady called Justine, who's amazing. <laughs> and she really helped me and my mum hear each other. Yeah. And it sounds
0: like, you know, there was there was grunt work to do it was not straight you know it wasn't like a straightforward you sat down in front of the therapist and everything flowed out it sounded long and hard but you know you won in the end between between you
2: yeah it was it was arduous painful (laughs) awkward (laughs) like frustrating at first because my mum doesn't talk as much as me and she got used to obviously not talking about this thing at the heart of our family Mm -hmm. and I'd always have to do all the explaining and all the questioning so I was very angry at first because I'd said you've you've no idea what you've put me through I've had to keep defending our family defending you and people made jokes about you know my mum and the postman I'd heard it all by this point and yeah yeah I had to do a lot of um sort of forgiving I guess and also just a lot of work on myself and I was quite angry at my mum for for that at the beginning and then by the end you know we stuck at it for two years maybe two and a half every week and by the end it was like so much of that anger just evaporated and my mum was so much more open and so much more able to hear me and understand.
0: I so admire you both for sticking with that. That must have been so hard to stick with that for two and a half years. That's an that's incredible piece of work to do.
2: <laughs> yeah. It really is. Yeah, no, yeah, no, Yeah, it is. It was hard. It was really hard. There was times when I'd walk out or she'd walk out or somebody would feel, you know, affronted at something someone else had said, and there'd be screaming. Mm. Kids. It was really hard, painful work. And <laughs> even in the book, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't replicate all those moments because it's so painful to even go back on because it's like, mm. you know, it's like my mum, I didn't, I didn't want to cut my mum out. I'd already lost my dad. I wasn't about to ostracize myself from my family, but it was, it yeah. was, a long old road, as my mum says. Yeah, yeah. And your therapist must have had a great time. <laughs> oh, I think we were her best class. She was. I think she was fascinated by it. But she was all. I found out she was so good at helping each other, helping me and my mum hear each other. And I found out at the end that she actually had mixed race children herself. And I think that really mm. brought to the experience having. I was quite suspicious at yeah. first. I thought, Oh, she's a white woman. She's not going to get all of this. I'm going to have her and my mum gang up on me. But it was really, she was just, she just struck the correct balance with both of us at all times. And then I found out okay, she's, she has a bit of personal experience that she brought to it as well. But I didn't feel that. It was just sort of a suspicion that I was, I was correct. <laughs> mm,
0: it's amazing. And so, so how are things now? I mean, like, I, you know, your mum sounds wonderful. Just someone that got stuck for a while.
2: Yeah, she got stuck for a long time, I think, in her own head. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a while is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, years, like two decades. But she was allowed. You know, it was her and my dad. They, I guess, silently conspired to, to raise me and my brother. You know, the same way. Like they both adopted this silence. And my dad just never challenged her. And my mum, she wasn't forthcoming once she knew that she she didn't have to speak about it. So yeah, she's a lot more open now, which is great, and a lot more able to kind of talk about about race and identity without it necessarily looping back to me and you know us reliving something really painful it doesn't erupt into arguments and if I want to say something to my mum and I feel like I've you know gone through something or I've got a story she'll just listen and she'll be able to offer some support which before was quite hard to do that because I think she's worried about the story coming out so we'd never really discuss anything to do with to do with race as the therapist said that kept us separate from one another so it's it's good that we've now I think become a bit
0: common language. Mm. And actually, I mean, your mum's gone on a journey that loads of white people have gone on over the last couple of years, Mm. you know, like we as a society are hopefully learning to speak about this better and to Mm. have some language that's no longer offensive, but which is also like a bit more frank and a bit less illusory and kind of embarrassed about the whole thing.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I hope, you know, raceless, my book will help, Inspire some of those difficult conversations because as, as as we're mixing more as a society and as you know we're having relationships closer relationships with people that are of a different cultural or ethnic background to us, we need to like have honest, nuanced discussions about privilege and difference and love and discrimination, and we need to have them without it erupting or without you know yeah there there being you know parts of the conversation that are overlooked or or silenced. Mm. And pretending we don't see colour does not help. No, yeah, I guess I get quite a few messages from people like, oh, I need to talk to my child and my you know, partner about race. How shall I do it? And I'm like, God, I don't have kids and I, I don't know what to advise. But if you buy the book, then maybe that will give you some some inspo. It's, yeah. it's so hard to speak to other people's experiences. I can only you know, discuss what I've done and what worked for me.
0: But, oh, my God, kids can handle so much more than we expect them to. Like, you just talk directly to kids about stuff and they... Absorb it like they don't carry the baggage that we carry Mm. of you know, you know like loads of people in my I mean I'm 43 getting old um but you know like we were raised to say that we don't see colour like that was the that was the polite thing to say when I was a kid Mm. and that was like the you know that would have been perceived as right on and that it takes us a while to U-turn from you know realizing that we thought we were being really good all the time and oh no sorry actually it's quite offensive I mean kids just don't carry that baggage we can we can start all over again with them and that's great
2: yeah I yeah I definitely you know having spoke to my mum and getting that insight into her mind and what it was like for her growing up in the 60s and 70s I can see how it was just a completely different approach to race and how mm. many people of that generation are you know they're playing catch-up in a way I guess to yeah yeah to what's going on now which is a real sort of open dialogue around all aspects mm. of identity and underrepresented voices like we're so much more attuned to that lack yeah that lack of of, a voice now so it's great to be in that in that position and great to be a a writer in these times I think
0: oh and we're glad to have you I mean I think that your book will help so many people to understand a little bit better to really unpick the issues and I think it's also just a, a amazing testament to the power of having really difficult conversations and how it's worth it in the end so I can't wait for everyone
2: to read it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Georgina, thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. And that's all from us today. Thank you so much to Georgina Lawton for sharing her story with us. Raceless is available in all good bookstores and you can follow Georgina on Instagram or Twitter. Links are in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Thanks for listening.